Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. we haven't had a chat about um kind of what's going on for Canadians with COVID in a while yeah so I was thinking that maybe this week we could start talking a little bit about mortgages um for a couple of reasons the first being you know that six months has kind of come up to an end you know Earlier in the pandemic, a lot of financial institutions were saying you can defer your mortgage for six months. Um, so I think that's just about to the end of the six months or is coming up for a lot of people. So I kind of wanted to jump into that. And then something interesting that you and I have been talking about lately is this notion of modern monetary theory. So I thought maybe that uh, could lead into that theory from, from the mortgage side of things. Yeah, let's do it. I think uh, the deferral is coming to the end, uh, or deferral is coming to an end, I suppose, is um, going to be fine for some folks and going to be really not fine for other folks. So yeah, da- let's dive in. Yeah, so I guess the premise is that um, back in, oh God, whatever month it was, uh, there March. was... March was it March? I really feel like I, I don't know at, at this point. March, yeah, yeah. So there was a lot of people that were, you know, obviously losing their jobs and not sure how they were gonna be able to pay their mortgage. I think this is even before CERB was rolled out. So um, people had the ability to kind of defer their mortgage for about six months. And my understanding is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Tara, but the interest still accumulated on that mortgage, correct? Correct. So you still had your, yeah, the way, the easiest way I've thought about it is when you look at that amortization table that most um, lenders will give you when you get a mortgage and you see each payment, there's a portion to your principal and a portion to your interest. That portion to your interest was still being charged even though you weren't paying it. So it was still accruing. While it's accruing, next time around, you are going to have that deferred interest added into the calculation for your next interest payment too. So it's minimal, but it is, it's a dupli- it's interest accruing and then it's a duplication of interest as well. So you're basically paying interest on the interest. Yeah, and I know people don't like to say that, but it's it's true, and that's just how deferrals work. Okay. And do we know, I'm not sure if you know this off the top of your head, but is it affecting anyone's credit? Um, It depends. So some financial institutions uh, or individual lenders... Um, if you... Obviously, you had to have your mortgage with them, and if you just said, hey... 
I've been impacted by COVID. I want to uh, initiate the deferral. Some of them just said, okay, you're on it for six months. Let us know if you want to end your deferral period earlier. Maybe they explained the consequences and how the interest worked. Maybe they didn't. Some institutions, and this is where it's going to affect your credit, what they did is they said, that's great, um, but you need to qualify for the deferral. So you need to prove a loss of income. They repulled your credit. Um, and basically, it was like a small application for interest deferral. So that would affect your credit because they're doing a credit pool. They're doing basically an application, um, but you're not seeing another credit line on your uh, credit report. So I think we talked about that in the past. It kind of looks like you've been denied a credit product, which if you have a high 800 score, a low 800 score, 750, that kind of thing, it's not really going to hurt you. But if you were already on the brink, if your credit cards were a bit high, if you've missed some payments, um, having a, a hard pull on your score without an associated credit line might put you into a bit of a bad spot, especially if during those six months you missed other mandatory payments. Interesting. Yeah. But that, again, that's just how credit works. So it's yeah. kind of the same. It would be the same as going to a car dealership, having them do a hard pull on your credit, and you just saying, nah, man, I don't want to buy a car. Um, it's the same effect, but when you're in a precarious situation, it emotionally means a lot more. For sure. And so that period is of six months is coming up. Um, for some people, it's probably already up. Um, and you know, people might have qualified for a CERB in that point, um, which has now been transitioned to the new EI, um, and, you know, is about $2,000 a month, which I think, you know, we've kind of talked ad nauseum and I think a lot of people can probably agree that $2,000 a month isn't a whole heck of a lot, especially if you have a mortgage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I know for, for us, like $2,000 a month is what we pay for our mortgage. Mm -hmm. like just our mortgage without anything else. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that's pretty average. Like I was doing a little calculation on mortgage rates and that kind of thing and mortgage payments before we started chatting today. And, um, you know, for an average priced home with a 10% down, so an average priced single family with 10% down at, you know, pretty standard interest rate a couple of years ago, you're looking at something between, uh, you know, the realm of $2,000, give or take 10%, let's say. Um, so it's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility for sure. Yeah. And so I guess for me, um, I've been looking into personally the ability for um, lower rates. Obviously, we're starting to see some feel like advertising about these rates that are um, a lot lower than what I've seen in the past. Like I think I was looking today on rates by and the lowest one I came across was 1.41% for five-year fixed, which is crazy considering a year ago when we bought our house, we locked in 3.3, which you know, I'm not upset about. I still think it's pretty low, but I was, you know, I'm starting to question like, okay, you know, does this make sense 
to start maybe looking at our options. And I feel like obviously I'm in a very privileged position where we're still able to pay our mortgage, but there could be people that are coming up to their you know, end of their mortgage deferral and might be looking to refinance or something like that so that their their payment is lower every month. And I feel like maybe um, lower interest rates could do that. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's nice to be able to qualify for the lower interest rates. If you've taken a deferral, um, if you're currently in a deferral, I think it's probably unlikely that you would be able to refinance. If you've already ended your deferral and started repayments, then they might consider you. Um, but it's going to be tough to qualify because now we're six months in. And if you've had six months of no income um, and you're using like your most recent pay stubs and stuff to qualify, you could be looking at using a much lower income um, than you did when you first qualified for your mortgage. So this is not for like new mortgage folks where your income versus asset value might not be a huge deal. But if you're already in a mortgage and you're looking to refinance, you're basically like, let's say you took a $450,000 mortgage because the average housing price is about 500,000 for a single family, 10% down, 450 is what you got. So if your asset price is now not 500,000 anymore, um, because it may not be, uh, if your income is, you know, maybe 50% of what it was or 80% of what it was, um, you now don't have the same value of asset anymore and you have a lower income to debt. So your debt is just as high, but your income has dropped and possibly your asset price has dropped too. Um, and that can make it difficult to qualify. Yeah, so let's back up for a second here, and because this was all new to me, so I feel like it's potentially new to some people listening as well. Like, what options do you have? Um, when I was talking to our mortgage broker, there was, you know, the ability to kind of refinance. I've heard of this blend and extend, and I'm not sure if there's like a third option to try and get a lower rate. Um, so are you able to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, um if your lender provides it, the best option would be a straight early renewal. Not everyone offers that. Um, some banks, some institutions have been pretty generous and they've actually allowed more folks to um, access the early renewal, which is basically you take the prepayment penalty. So if you were to switch mortgages or sell your house like in your, in your term, um, so switch brokers or, or uh, sell your house, you pay a prepayment penalty for basically breaking the term of your mortgage. So probably a few thousand bucks. Um, I think on average. Oh, oh we'll get into penalties. Don't okay. worry. I have some <laughs> thoughts about those. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So you pay a prepayment penalty. It's usually a few thousand bucks. Um, and uh, then you get to just early renew. So if you're three years into your term, you pay the penalty, you sign up for another five years at whatever, less than 2%, let's say, you're done. There's no application. There's nothing like that. So there's no checking your credit on that? Nope, because it's just an early renewal if you've stayed with the same lender. But again, not all mortgages. It depends what you signed. It depends what your lender is offering. Um, it depends on so many things. But likely, uh, if you're with a larger institution, 
if you've actually paid a little bit more in interest, you might be one of the people that are with an institution and in the type of mortgage where you can access that. But again, not everyone can. The blend and extend. So what you were looking at is where they, let's say you have two more years left on your term at 3.3%. You take what the remaining principal balance is, 3.3%, figure out what that is, and you're kind of doing like a weighted average. Then you take, um, so over the next two years, 3.3% principal balance. Then you say you're signing up for a five-year term, you do the uh, next three years, because I said there's two years left on that one, next three years at say 1.4 um, with the principal balance. Then you figure out whatever the, the average is between that, right? And it's going to depend on your principal balance. It's going to be de depend on the remaining years in your current mortgage. And it's going to depend on the new interest rate in your next five years. So there's that. There's usually a fee for that as well. You might have to pay a pay the full prepayment penalty fee as well as a fee to blend it, or you might just have to pay the blend fee. Um, when you do that too, like you said with the extend, you have the ability to extend your amortization, which can be a really good thing if you are um, not able to meet your current monthly obligations. The longer your amortization is, the lower your payment will be. So right now, most of us got capped at 25-year mortgages. When our parents were looking at stuff, they could have like 30, 35-year mortgages, that kind of thing, right? Or the generation before us. Um, so the longer you amortize it for, the lower your monthly payment will be because it's spreading out the debt over that many years. Uh... So let's see, we did the early renewal, blend and extend. Oh, and then like a full refinance. So full refinance, you can either, um, you can either extend your amortization at that time. Um, so you're not adding anything to the principal or doing anything like that. You could add to the principal or, um, yeah, I mean, that's basically the only times I think a refinance would be necessary. There's also an option, I guess, if none of those work, and I'll get into why maybe they don't work um, in a second here, but you could make a prepayment of up to whatever your mortgage allows with, with a lower rate um, HELOC, correct? So you'd say like switch to a HELOC? So you'd, let's say you'd qualify for a HELOC and then it would, mm -hmm. assuming, be at a lower rate, like the, let's say this 1.41. And let's say you're allowed to prepay up to 20% of your mortgage every year. You might just want to consider, or you might consider basically just moving the mortgage payment from your financial institution if your interest rate is high to that home equity line of credit. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I guess, but that's a little bit of gymnastics because if you, it's basically a refinance as well. So if yeah. you did the regular refinance, it's a full new application. It's like getting a new mortgage for the you know, or, or switching to a different lender, right? You have to do your income, you have to do your debt ratios. Um, so if you want to look that up, that's the TDS and the GDS, you can look it up on CMHC. Um, you have to look at the, the asset price again, which might just be your last tax assessment, but it might be a new appraisal. Um, so to qualify for a HELOC or to qualify for a refinance, you need to do those things. Um, if you do just a straight refinance, you might still have to pay those prepayment penalties. But if it's if you need to do it to extend your amortization, you might have to just figure out a way 
to get a small loan or put the prepayment penalties on a credit card, unfortunately. Now, if you did what you were suggesting to do the HELOC and then do the prepayment and then do the, I would imagine after doing the prepayment, you would extend the amortization without a new application. Is that correct? I mean, I guess you have kind of either or, but um, yeah, yeah, let's, let's assume that. Because if you do a prepayment, even if you have the access to do 20% down, usually that doesn't change your monthly obligations unless you extend the amortization because you're still within that, um, you're still working within that contract, right? So you're basically just giving yourself more liabilities to pay because then you'll also have to pay your HELOC. Yeah. Um, And it's still an application. For the HELOC, you still have to do your income. You still have to do your asset price. You still have to do like your debt servicing ratios, obviously. Um, And HELOCs are usually at a higher rate than the mortgage. (sighs) Interesting. You could do a second. (sighs) I don't love that option. I really don't love that option. To me, it seems like, so you'd say, like, put the 20% down, carry the 20% at, you know, let's say prime, and then extend the amortization on your mortgage to get the lower payment, because you couldn't get the lower rate without then doing a refinance. Yeah, that one definitely is some gymnastics, but I was just trying to figure out all the options that would be available. Yeah. Yeah. The HELOC, yeah, I mean, if it's if it's super important to you to take that 20% and pay it at, at, at a lower rate, and I mean, if you qualify for the HELOC, it could be substantial. If somehow you got um, into a 5% five-year mortgage, and now you're looking at a HELOC that you qualify at prime minus something, then that might make sense. Um, but it's still, it's still an application. So if your income has changed... If the value of your household has changed and they do look at the debt that you already carry on that to qualify for a HELOC as well because you're putting more debt against that asset. Um, And then you also have to look at your uh, income versus debt, which would be your TDS and your GDS. And there are ranges that you have to qualify for. So you could do that. There is a lot there. Yeah. So I guess the reason I wanted to kind of spell out all the options was when we were looking at, um, and this was just through our mortgage broker, so we are definitely going to be calling our financial institution, and I will speak strongly to them about allowing us to do um, one of the first couple options you mentioned, but we basically, I think we were under the impression that it would be a few thousand dollars to kind of pay the penalty and we were kind of like okay that you know it might make sense if we're able to get quite a low interest rate but um when our mortgage broker reached out to the financial institution to actually get the calculation uh it ended up being eighteen thousand dollars yeah so this is where people are gonna get um (sighs) i was like horrified that it was that um expensive to break your penalty and so then i went into this Mm -hmm. Um, down a rabbit hole of of mortgage prepayment penalties. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a class action lawsuit against some of the the bigger financial institutions in Canada based on how unfair some of these calculations are. 
And um, there was like a CBC um, news that some woman at the beginning of the pandemic had to sell her house and then she had to pay Mm $30,000 for her penalty. And the other thing that I think is worth noting is like, I totally understand that the whole point of the penalty is so, um, you know, they can mitigate their losses, but there was a study done um, and I'd have to find the... um, the 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 link to it but it ended up in most of these situations the penalty covers like 200 times the actual loss that the financial institution would be taking and i just think that that's so predatory like it it's not helpful it obviously it's helpful to the financial institution but it's just like so detrimental to the to the person trying to refinance and mm-hmm. again like i said with variable rates, I think the penalty is kind of like three months of interest. And I think that that's totally a fair payment. But, you know, tens of thousands of dollars seems ridiculous to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a couple of things on that. You remember back like 12 years ago or so, like we heard a lot about like mortgage-backed securities? Yeah. Those. Yeah. 2008. Yeah. So the the losses that the uh, financial institutions would incur would also affect their ability to create mortgage-backed securities. Now, I'm not saying that all mortgage-backed securities are bad. 2008 had some things. Um, One or two things. Yeah, right? And like they're, yeah. So you can still wrap up a good mortgage, right? You can still wrap up and resell on the secondary market um, um, a mortgage. So your lender, if you're going to a major institution, if even, even if you're not, um, they can take your mortgage and then they sell it again. So it's not just the interest that they're making off of you. It's not just the spread between what you see as, um, you know, their cost of providing you this mortgage and then the income that you're generating, the revenue that you're generating for them with the interest that you're paying them. It's also their ability to then sell your mortgage. And if you are a good mortgagee, I guess, um, like if, if you are a good applicant, if your house is good, if the institution is good, you're, you're able to sell that mortgage at a premium, right? So that's also one of the reasons why the, the fixed rates I think are, are higher to break. There's, there's a second revenue stream that comes from mortgages as well. Totally. And it's the same, you know, when people are like, oh, like bank fees. Um, I still don't understand why bank fees are a thing because like that's not how banks make money. Like banks make money off of holding all of your money and then like relending it and um, leveraging it for investments. Like they make money on your money. And I think that there was a study out there that said, you know, basically banks are making, you know, 12 times what you give them on any deposit and it just feels like they're already making so much money and like I don't know if you've been following the news around like the profit some of the big financial institutions are posting but it's like why do you need to charge these people that obviously like need to sell their house in the pandemic $30,000 yeah 
that that kind of made me think of another piece on it too is if you really want to if you really want to think about bank fees in a very sad kind of way people with high deposits right like they carry a high balance they usually get their bank fees waived why because having like a bunch of money sit in a checking account savings account tfsa whatever whatever you're getting charged fees on they can lend against that right it's not yeah it's enough that they can lend off of it and and make a profit i think oh totally this is all speculation people who get charged bank fees are the folks that don't carry high balances have payments that come out at inopportune times so they go into their overdraft so they get overdraft fees uh what else the hell else i mean you get charged for a lot of things basically my point is poor people pay bank fees and rich people don't so what can like what can we do like obviously again like i'm in a very privileged position and i realize that like I'm just whining because I want a lower rate and I will continue to do so until I get that lower rate. But what do we do if like we're in a position where, you know, a couple hundred dollars refinancing a couple hundred dollars is going to make or break whether or not I can make my mortgage payment? Yeah. So you want to try your best to negotiate and refinance as much as possible so even if they say it's going to cost 18,000 or whatever if they offer you a loan for the 18,000 and you qualify for it like by some chance in hell you can actually do that um and it's it's a matter of i need this reamortization to be able to make my monthly payment obligations and and keep this house i would suggest doing that If you need to rent out a room in your house, I would suggest doing that. (sighs) Do whatever you can. I mean, the easiest thing to do is do whatever you can to make your monthly obligations. Um, If you got one of the financial institutions that is making you pay back all of the deferred interest in one go and will not add it to the principal or what have you, or wrap it up in like a second loan or something like that. Um, try your best. So that could be generating additional income, um, by maybe renting out a room. Uh, I mean, if you can do skip the dishes, there's not a lot out there. Like I mentioned earlier, I don't think there's an opportunity for doing a lot of side hustle right now. Um, because otherwise, you have to default. And that's not a great option. That is not a great option. It's not a great option for a variety of reasons. One, you lose your house. If your mortgage is backed by what I had mentioned earlier, where you can get the calculations for what you can afford and how you can make your income work for you, CMHC or one of the other insurance companies, the bank's going to be fine. We're not going to have anything like 2008. Um... So if you put less than 20% down, don't worry about the rest of the country if you have to foreclose. Uh, If you have to foreclose, it's going to have a negative, significant negative impact on your credit. 
it's better to miss a monthly payment here or there and somehow maintain your mortgage than it is to fully default on it. Um, so whatever you can do for that. But I mean, mortgage qualifications are what they are, especially if you're at a large financial institution. They don't have a lot of internal gymnastics that they can do to help you. These are set. TDSRs and GDSRs are set. Income verifications are set. Asset values are set. They can't just make stuff up, um, unfortunately. So if you have to foreclose, it's going to have a huge negative impact to your credit score. But let's just say, you know, you have to walk away. You can't do it. This has happened before. This happened in the 80s. Um, and this has happened between the 80s and now. It just hasn't happened um, en masse nationwide. But it's fine. If you have to walk away, you have to walk away. Where do you go after, though? Landlords and um, property management firms do credit checks. So your ability to gain housing afterwards can be um, very much negatively impacted. It's definitely going to affect you for a few years afterwards. Having a mortgage default, from what I have seen, it has a much bigger negative impact than walking away from a credit card. That's interesting. And good to know. And so I think that this kind of maybe leads into what I wanted to start diving into around this notion of modern monetary theory that you and I have been talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, the advice that we had given last season in the before times in terms of mortgages was, you know, get something you can afford, save up, um, you know, don't carry too much debt, do all those kind of things. And from what I've seen of this modern monetary theory is basically busting the myth that the government should do the same, that the government should run like a household. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what you hear from a lot of conservatives. I find, um, you know, if I can't run my household like that, uh, so the government shouldn't, I would, I do want to say though, like in a lot of situations, the households take on debt, like, we, you and I take on mortgages because we're not going to save up $500,000, right? Businesses and corporations take on debt because it makes sense financially to do so for investing as opposed to spending their cash. So I I really do hate that when conservatives, and it's usually conservatives, say that. But, but you're right. Um, talking about modern monetary theory, that is the first piece of it is that um, you know, the government is not a household. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there can be a lot of, um, benefits for that. Like one of the things that got me started looking into, um, modern monetary theory was just in terms of that sort of, it was almost like experiencing cognitive dissonance because um, we're told to go out and take on a student loan. And what we're, what are we doing when we take on a student loan? We're leveraging against our future earnings. We're leveraging against our potential that we think that, um, you know, trade or degree program can provide us, right? When we buy a house, what are we doing? We're leveraging the value of that asset. We're seeing the returns, whether monetary 
or um, just in terms of you know basic needs in terms of shelter and stability are are worth um, amortizing an asset over 25 or 30 years right so I thought why are we talking about especially during a pandemic how can we afford this when shouldn't we be saying listen we're in unprecedented times which we've heard so much now and we know that people are unable to work safely we know that we are going to have um, a supply issue right in terms of our economic um, system as a nation so wouldn't it make sense to then look at this support people take on debt or run a deficit let's say to leverage against the future earnings of those people and those small businesses once they get back up and running, once this thing slows down. Like, honestly, I think, and I am not the smartest person on this, but I think if you had been able to contain this pandemic effectively the first time, we could already see... um you know, some sort of like economic resurgence, we could have already seen value for the debt or deficit that we took on, right? So that's what me got me started in looking into modern monetary theory, because I was like, I am not an expert at this, I can't be the first person to be asking these questions. What, what caught your eye about modern monetary theory? I think it's really interesting from that perspective. The other piece of it that I think is really interesting is that, um, it it challenges the way you think about financing expenses. And we've heard a lot of how like, oh, it's taxes that do that. And I'm not saying taxes don't have a role. Um, and that's kind of what modern monetary theory does. But it really only talks about taxation uh, when it comes to inflation and demand for the Canadian dollar. So um, if the the Canadian dollar were to become more inflated because we were to print more money, taxation would be a way to take some of that money out of the system. And I thought that that was really interesting because it's true. We, we do, we print the money ourselves. Like we can make more of it. Um, and ultimately modern monetary theory says that the government um, does not kind of tax and spend it creates money and spends that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, like, what if, like, personally, let's let's maybe turn the housing or the government as a household on its head a little bit. If you, as an individual household, had, a, you know, a money printer in your, your basement or what have you, and you knew you only had access to it for like five years, but you're going in for like a really tough time. Or like, as soon as you started up the money printer, you're like, okay, there's like, I can only print money for five years. And then the money printer is just going to like go bust and I can't get another one or whatever. Like, what would you do? I mean, you'd, you'd print the money. You'd print the money. You'd buy shit. You'd invest in yourself. Yeah. And then if you needed to sell some shit later because you couldn't print any more money, you'd do so. Or trade or whatever. You'd you'd maybe go to university without taking on, like, other debt. Or buy some assets, maybe some revenue-generating assets. 
um, you'd put that money into the hands of, of other people. You'd buy food, you'd buy, um, consumables, right? And then, yeah, if at the end of five years you have this revenue generating asset and things still don't balance out for you, yeah, maybe you'd sell the revenue generating asset. Um, I just don't understand why that is not applied. Um, but anyway, that's just a thought experiment I thought of now because that, that's what I would do. Yeah. Like, that's... isn't that what we all do? Yeah, totally. And I mean, that's kind of how retirement works, if you think about it. Like, mm-hmm. your revenue generating asset uh, or or the way you print money in your life is by working. And then when you retire, you don't really have an income anymore from a traditional way of working. So you kind of, I guess in a sense, are saving up or investing in things that will give you money or generate income while you're working so that when you have that kind of tap turned off, you have assets that will allow you to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've, I've been reading this book called The Deficit Myth. Uh, sorry, I'll say that better. The Deficit Myth. Um, and one of the things she points out here is that, um, you know, people always say it's government debt, it's government deficits, living, the government is living beyond its means. But she says here, and I'm just going to read it out and hopefully I don't get copyright infringement or something. Um, MMT paints the rest of the picture using some simple accounting logic. Suppose the government spends $100 into the economy, but collects just $90 in taxes. The difference is known as a government deficit, but there's another way to look at the difference. The deficit creates a surplus for someone else. So we already do this, I feel like. We already do this. Sorry, that's the end of the quote. Sometimes we do make a decision as a society, our elected officials make a decision to take $90 in taxes um, rather than the full 100 But usually those go to big companies. They get a lower corporate tax rate. We do that kind of thing. And it's supposed to work in a certain way. But what if we didn't tax the people who couldn't afford it And then we gave them stuff so that next time around, they could afford to pay taxes. Like, give someone food today, because I think she's totally right. Like, if you look at it, like, the old, uh, like, like make a tea account of it, except on one side, it's a tax break, and on the other side, it's food. You know what I mean? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's an interesting way of kind of thinking about it, and... I think that one of the articles I pulled up to like that was explaining modern monetary theory states that um, deficits are good for the economy economy and are necessary actually in times of financial crisis, which I would say we're in a financial crisis Mm -hmm. Um, and that government debt doesn't actually make people poorer and it ultimately won't make future generations won't burden future generations because I think we hear that a lot as well. Um, so you know these gov- the government can pay off these debts by by printing new currency. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it really comes down to a choice because I've started to think about you know 
when people say things like make America great again, or like they have some sort of nostalgia for the good old days of the 1950s. And it's like that explosion, um, one, came out of regulation after the Great Depression, but also came out of worse time spending. No, I'm not saying we should go to war. I definitely think we shouldn't. But wartime spending took on a ton of debt and reallocated a ton of resources and, you know, labor or human capital, like whatever you want to call it. It gave people jobs that didn't have jobs before. Um, And it was all on the government dime. So why could we not do that now? Like, why is it more valuable to spend money on war than it is to spend money on ensuring people don't get sick or starve? Mm-hmm. For sure. And, I mean, I was just going to say, like, when, like, the more I read into this, the more it makes sense um, to answer that question, that bloody question that people always ask, like, well, how are you going to pay for it, right? Like when we talked about UBI, you know, that's kind of the the notion that people, usually conservatives, say is like, oh, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? But it, it really is, I guess, through printing their own money. And then if inflation starts to go a little bit wild, um, then you implement some taxation that brings cash back into into the hands of the government reducing the amount of currency there is floating around, right? Like it's, it is supply and demand when it comes to kind of inflation in that aspect. So we're not going to get to the point of like Zimbabwe where like inflation is crazy or Venezuela or something like that. The government has the power. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing about inflation as well, because I feel as though inflation is relative too, because if you have a central bank and the central bank sets the interest rates too, what, what's the problem with inflation? It eats into the ability to currently spend, and it also eats into your future, your savings, your, your future earnings, right? But if we have an interest rate encouraging people to save that is comparable and matches like the inflation rate. So let's look at like back in the, again, like nineties or like early eighties or whatever, um, where you had super, super, super high interest rates, but you also had super, super, super high savings rates as well. Like why not have a savings account with 18% interest? Why not have government bonds? Why not? Like, there are ways to incentivize people to then stop spending money. And we know that already. And totally, because I'm not going to save any money in my checkings account with TD that's mm-hmm. earning 0.1%. No. And we're already seeing inflation. Like, we've already seen... um, We've already seen that inflation can increase at a time when we have, like you know, the standard, like, stimulus-creating things, like the lower interest rates and and the, 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 like, free credit and stuff like that, right? We can see that in some places, like we talked about uh, in Canada's North, inflation, what does that even mean when you're already paying $20 for an apple, right? Yeah. You know, like, maybe inflation is not the boogeyman. 
Yeah, I mean, you make an interesting point. And I mean, we haven't had inflation be high for a long time. Not in my adult lifetime, I don't think. It's been a really long time. And honestly, as a millennial, I might be cool with a little bit more inflation for a little bit more on and the interest side of things, right? Like, yeah. Anyway. Um, it is an interesting concept, and I, I think it's becoming... Because this theory is not that new, actually. It was, like, created in the 70s, wasn't it? So I guess it's a new yeah. kind of... Um, in this, in the sense of economic theories in their lifetime, but you know, it's it's kind of I think started to gain some more traction. I think actually when I was doing a Google search around modern monetary theory, AOC has actually mentioned it. So it's definitely gaining some traction. Yeah, I mean, it. In, when I was looking into it, it used to be very much like fringe um, side of you know, uh, academic, uh, economists, but it looks like it's gaining a little bit more traction in the mainstream now, just because we're seeing some, you know, really crazy things. Um, and maybe it's, it's time to, to rethink the way we, we look at government spending and look at it as an investment in people as well. Right. You know, like, I think I mentioned it on another one is like you're asking how our kids are going to pay for it but you're not taking into account that some kids like this could mean eating today or not and it doesn't matter how you're going to pay for it if you're not even going to survive that long yeah and you know that's the really the thing that pisses me right off is I've had a couple conversations with some people I will not name names but um you know, there's been commentary around how much debt has been taken on by the government during this pandemic. Hint, hint, it's the conservatives who have said this. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, my response back to these people is like, okay, well, how much is a human life worth? Like, I don't know, they've taken out $20 billion or whatever it is. I actually don't know how much they've spent. But like, these measures have been to save people's lives like when you think about it like so how much is a human life worth and that's kind of my go-to answer now when everyone brings up like debt and stuff is like okay then tell me how much a life is worth how much should we spend what's the cap and whose life is more important than someone else's and I think it's a kind of a a startling way to think about it. But I think sometimes we take the emotion out of or conservatives try to by just making it all dollars and cents. And I am an accountant, so I understand that side of it as well. But at the end of the day, these are like people that are dying. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there is an argument to it as well, like outside of of just placing value on human life, which I think should be paramount. I think that should be the first thing. What's the point of of living and participating in a country and a democracy if the nation doesn't care whether or not you live or die, um, right? So, yeah, I, I think that should be paramount. Um, but one of the things that I was reading in this book, and I, I can't find the section on it now, was she did do a comparison of the 2008 crisis um, and how the states looked at it. 
and the forecasts that were given and how much money they said, you know, to bring up every American out of this crisis, this is how much the the government um, and the central bank should spend on this recovery. And if you don't spend enough, you end up making, I, I mean, this is not how she words it. This was my take on my interpretation of it. But if you don't spend enough, you end up making it worse. Because not only do you take on debt, you don't necessarily spend it on the correct, um, in the correct places. You don't spend enough to make a difference if you try to spend, spread it out too thin. Um, and, and you end up not saving anyone, right? So why, yeah, I just don't understand why you wouldn't invest in people. So I guess that does come back to a quality of life thing, but I mean, if you don't spend enough so that people can't survive and then pay taxes to then pay that back um, or at a certain point just turn off the money printer, <laughs> um, you know, you're not going to you're not going to get out of it either. It's kind of like taking on a student loan, finishing half the program and then still having that debt. Right. Or taking on a student loan and taking four years of first year courses in a variety of programs. Like I think there are a lot of um, analogies that could be made to say, if somebody gives you like uh, a figure and says you can feed every single person in Canada, if you just print this much money, I don't know why you'd say no to that because if people eat, people survive, and then people work, and then people pay taxes. So, I don't know. I think there are a lot of um, traditional conservative arguments when it comes to, you know, how are we going to pay for it, and I think when you look at it at the end of the day, it's just a choice. We we already pay taxes. Um, we already spend money on other things that don't feed the people of this nation that don't support the people of this nation um yeah man and i think it's a really interesting way to look at it and i i know you and i have talked about we're going to dig into this more and hopefully find an expert on modern monetary theory to interview because it is something that is so interesting and i think both of us are going to try and finish that book i need to start it but um <laughs> I think it's a like a very refreshing way to look at money, especially in an economy that, like you said, I don't know if it's supporting all of its citizens or residents appropriately or, or equitably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's kind of a way of looking at economics and finance in the vein of we are all in it together, you know, like... At the end of the day, we own the money printer. We do. I mean, you, know? you and I don't have the money printer, but no, we don't press the button on the printer. But that would be it's a fun. Ours. That would be a fun job. Would it? I don't know. You just get to decide how much money is made. Just like I'm imagining, it's just like it prints, and then this is probably not how it works at all. It's just like a button on a computer. But in my head, the printers go, and then you get like a a money tunnel and you get to run through all the money i don't think that's how it works i don't think that's how it works no but it it would still be cool to press the button whether like figuratively or literally it would be cool and it would be cool to like 
ensure that it's spent on Canadians and not, you know, sent offshore. That would be really sweet. That would be good as well. So is that our is that our pink tax rebate then? The government is not a household? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we have to stop thinking about it that way. We have to change our mindset because it's true. It's it's not a household. It's not a corporation. It's it's a government. And I think there are lots of great examples of governments doing more for their citizens and residents around the world. And I think we need to start looking at how we can support all types of people in Canada as opposed to just the predominantly white male ones. And I, you know, I would hate for us to kind of go down the road that the U S has. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't want this. Like if we have a money printer and someone's like, press this button or watch over 200,000 of your neighbors die. Yeah. No, thank you. Like, Press the fucking button. Gone, thought I lost my mind. Creature without a spine. Took back what should be mine. Thrown in the deep end. Trouble, I gained a voice. I'm not your shiny toy. Left me without a choice. What was Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Let us know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Pink Tax Podcast is recorded in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Our music is provided by Margot. You can find her work at noisebymargot.com. Sound editing by Peter Dobson. If you'd like to support the Pink Tax Podcast, you can make a donation at liberapay.com slash pinktaxpodcast and submit a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.